What is going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. Today, we have a shit ton of questions. I mean, we have more questions that came in this week than we have had in a long time um, in one round. I'm going to do a rapid fire style question and answer podcast. I've actually never called the Q&A and question and answer. It's kind of funny, um, but sounded funny coming out of my mouth, but I'm going to keep it on there because we don't edit this thing. This is all real raw and relevant. So today I'm going to provide a ton of value. I'm actually really excited to spend the hour with you and just crank through as many questions as possible. Um, there's nothing I love doing more. Um, actually, there is something I love doing more and it's giving away free shit, which is what we are going to do right now. We haven't done a contest giveaway, a free giveaway, a uh, rate and review style giveaway in a long time, and I need to do it more frequently. So what I think I'm going to do is I think I'm going to start doing a monthly t-shirt giveaway where I'm going to literally send you a t-shirt, a Boom Boom Performance t-shirt, but this one being the first giveaway for a t-shirt is going to be a special one. It's a special one because I had a specially designed t-shirt that we are never going to release for sale. We are opening sales for our t-shirts up to clients and stuff like that. But this is a t-shirt I actually only made for myself. The bad news about this t-shirt, I didn't want anybody else to have it. I was being selfish because it's a funny thing. I'm really excited. I had somebody create, my boy Mike, create a, uh, a logo that matched the Seinfeld logo, but it said Boom Boom. So it's literally the Seinfeld logo, but it says Boom Boom. And I'm super fucking excited because Seinfeld's my favorite show. You guys know this if you follow me. Um, I had him create a Boom Boom logo. The problem was is our T-shirt creator said that the because the logo was kind of complicated and it used multiple colors, we had to order a minimum of 12 shirts. Nobody else is obsessed with Seinfeld on my team, so I'm the only one with this. And even if I give one to everybody on my team and my family, we still have some T-shirts left. That's where you come in. You're going to get a special designed, a special edition, a one that will never be released again because we're never going to make it again, t-shirt, and I'm going to give it to you for free. All you got to do is leave a five-star rating and review. The way this is going to work, I'm going to give away three t-shirts. I already said it, three t-shirts. We're going to do three. We, I think me and my assistant said one. Tori told me one. We're going to do three. Fuck it. We're doing three t-shirts. Three of you are going to get a t-shirt. All I need you to do is leave a five-star rating and review. Today is May 2nd. I'm literally filming, recording this the day before it airs. We're going to let this sit for a full week. So next Friday, because iTunes takes some time, assuming that everything goes, so you have to literally go do this right now for it to be participating. Next week, Friday, I'm going to look at my calendar. What is, what's the day on Friday? Friday, the 10th of next week on the Q&A in the intro, I'm going to announce the three winners and I'm going to tell you to email us your shirt size, so on and so forth. Uh, but all you need to do is go leave a five-star rating and review. Make it funny. Make it sweet. Make it nice. Make it informative. Tell me what you actually feel about the podcast. Let us know what is helping you and give us some description and some context because when other people read these reviews to see if they would like the podcast they relate to you guys and they understand what you're learning and and if you are learning and taking away things that they're seeking to take away from a podcast that's going to what's going to help these people dive into my shows and actually listen and learn so please leave a descriptive review i am going to critique and judge my favorite reviews i'm going to pick three of you guys so again today is the third when you're listening to this do me a favor right now, and even if you're subscribed, you have to go to the search bar. You have to type in Boom Boom Performance, click the show, leave us a five-star rating review. It will take three to five days to process in iTunes, and then I can actually review it. So please do that for me, guys. Um, I'm going to pick three winners, like I said, and I'm going to make sure that you guys get a T-shirt. 
Before we get into the show, a couple quick announcements. Uh, number one, guys, there's a seminar here in Seattle, July 20th and 21st with myself and Lauren Conlin. Once again, I will be diving into advanced strategies for program design to build your best physique. She will be diving into everything nutrition to build your best physique. These are limited seats, guys. There's still some available, so please shoot me a message if you have any questions about it. Shoot us an email or click the link in the description below so you can grab a ticket. Last but not least, guys, this podcast is brought to you by the Boom Boom Elite. This is where you get access to all of my seminar recordings, all of my ebooks, all of my training programs, and the private forum. It's the one place to get everything Boom Boom Performance, and it is the place to get the best training programs online, and I stand by that with confidence. So if you want access into the Elite, click the link in the description below or visit boomboomperformance.com slash elite. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to this Q&A with way too many questions for me to answer in an hour, but... We're going to make it happen. All right. So we're going to pull the first questions from the Facebook group. And then we will do the Instagram question. So the first question comes from Jacqueline Flint. Can you explain the difference between protein isolate and protein concentrate as well as the pros and cons of each? Yeah. So I don't even know why they call protein concentrate or whey concentrate concentrate like you might as well just call it whey protein because it's just it's whey protein whey isolate is isolated protein so it is literally what it sounds like it's removing it goes through more processing but during that processing it's removing more of the fillers it's removing the other macronutrients so if you look at a whey protein isolate it's likely going to have zero fat if not a half a gram of fat, like very low, very low carb, very low fat, very high protein. So it might be zero fat, one carb, 25 grams of protein. Whereas whey concentrate isn't going through as much of the processing, which could be a good thing. But at the end of the day, no matter what kind of protein powder you get, it's highly processed because they're extracting the actual macronutrient out of food and dairy to give you this powdered version. That's a ton of processing. So I think at, at this, if you're, if you're subbing for concentrate just because it's less processed, I think you're splitting hairs quite a bit. Um, but it's going to have a little bit of fat, a little bit of carbs. So the macros for a whey concentrate might be three grams of fat, six grams of carbs, and 18 grams of protein. So it's a little bit more balanced. There's a little bit more texture to it. There's a little bit more fillers to it. Um, and there, it's more whole, I guess you could say. The pros and cons, um, both are great whey protein sources. So both of them are going to give you the leucine, the amino acids needed to spike protein synthesis. In my opinion, it makes more sense to have a whey isolate because you're isolating the protein. So usually there's more protein per serving. Usually it's more concentrated on the amino acids versus fats and carbs, which is why I don't understand why concentrate is called concentrate. Uh, but there might be some processing reason that I'm just unaware of um, that I haven't looked into. Um, and I'll be honest about that. I don't dive into studies in, in science on protein powder very much. I'm much more centered around macronutrients as a whole, hormones as a whole, carbs as a whole, protein as a whole, things like that. Um, but anyway, I would recommend whey isolate almost every time because it's an isolated form of protein. You're going to get straight protein. You're probably going to get more protein per serving, which is always a good thing. And then you're going to get less carbs and fats, which the reality is, is I would rather have my clients save their carbs and fats for foods that they can add in versus getting it out of a powder. Not only because I think from a nutrient availability and nutrient absorption and just a satiety standpoint, you're going to get more benefit out of getting your fats and carbs from food. But I also believe that the quality of fats from a whey protein is going to be degraded compared to food. 
I would rather you save those three grams of fats and take three fish oils or add a little bit of extra grass-fed butter, egg, avocado, so on and so forth. I think it's much more beneficial. So in my opinion, whey isolate makes more sense. It's, it's better, especially if you're using some something like a highly branched cyclic dextrin. So let's say you're using the whey as a shake for a pre- or post-workout shake. It makes more sense to have an isolated version of protein so you can save the rest of the macros for better absorbing carbs or fats. Um, but that's just my opinion. But the main difference between them is that a whey protein isolate is just an isolated form. It's a more uh, processed and I keep saying concentrated, which I don't want to say because the other one's called concentrate, but it's a more concentrated protein. Jen Johnston, how parents can approach the topic with their kids and explain to them what they are doing and why they are tracking their food, aside from just flat out explaining it. Any tips or personal experience in clients having that conversation? So she was asking about, have you ever talked about uh, macros in children? And I said, no, I haven't talked about that on the show. And she said, how can how parents can approach this topic with their kids and explain to them what they are doing when they are tracking their food, aside from just flat out explaining it. Any tips or personal experience in clients having that conversation? So basically like what to do with your kids if you're tracking macros and they're wondering about it. I think number one, you should be honest and you can always, like I think you have to be very, very careful with wording when you're around children. Um, I don't think anybody should say I'm watching my food because I'm losing weight or I have to diet or anything like that. Like if you start beating into a child's head about dieting, about looking overweight or trying to lose weight or not liking what you see, I think that's setting them up for uh, poor relationships with food, the mirror, the scale, their body, so on and so forth. It's not a smart idea. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying you're choosing to eat healthy or you, you like to pay attention to what you eat or you're experimenting with different foods you put in your body, I think you just have to learn how to word it to where it seems like it's just a positive thing that you're doing for yourself. Um, you're experimenting, you're learning, you're, you're trying out new things, you're, you're recording some data for an experiment or a project or something like that. Like I don't think you need to overanalyze it. And the reality is, is a lot of times kids don't really give a shit. Like a lot of times they're just asking why, just to ask why. Like we all know how kids are like that. So in my mind, they might just be wondering what you're doing. Um, versus thinking they need to do it. And I think that's the most important thing is don't make them think they need to do it. Should ki kids eat healthy? Of course. Should they have snacks and ice cream and shit like that? Of course. Should they track macros? Absolutely not. I don't think that's smart at that age whatsoever. I don't even think anybody needs to track macros until they're an adult and they are seeking body composition change in a healthy manner or performance or anything like that. So I don't have a ton of experience because number one, my daughter's one. So it's hard. I don't, I don't talk to her about any of that stuff yet. She just eats what we put in front of her. But from my clients, I, I always just say, Hey, be careful with how you're wording things. Be careful what you talk about. Uh, be careful how you talk about your own body. And I think those are the most important things. I would look at it like an experiment or a project, and if you treat it that way in front of your kids, I think it'll look like a cool little thing that you're doing, an activity versus um, something demanding or that you need to do. Rhiannon Healy says, how are you adjusting meat throughout a diet slash reverse? For example, do you increase by X about of steps on the way up and then X on the way back down? Is it in response to changes in weight or biofeedback? So... I will only adjust NEAT during a fat loss protocol if I feel like it can be easily adhered to or if I feel like we're doing everything else and we need some kind of adjustment and everything else is hard to adhere to. So if somebody's already tracking macros, already doing cardio, already doing training, 
but I know that they're very sedentary, I'll be like, hey, let's add some meat. Let's double your steps. Let's get 10,000 instead of 5,000. Um, I will not crank it up until they're doing 20,000 steps a day because it's like, fuck, just do cardio at that point. Who cares? Um, but I do think for some people, either A, in a position where they're at a plateau and changing anything else will cause poor adherence, I think it can help just, just adding a little bit. But it should never be to an unbearable amount where it turns into purposeful cardio. Like, oh, I got to go to the gym and get on the treadmill to hit my NEAT score. It defeats the purpose of NEAT. That's not NEAT. NEAT is adding amount of steps that leads you to taking a five-minute walk after your meals or parking further away in the parking lot at work, things like that, right? Taking the stairs instead of the elevator when you get to your job, things like that. Um, I think that people get carried away with NEAT to the point where they're increasing NEAT so high that it's not even NEAT anymore. It's literally added cardio and you're just calling it NEAT because you're tracking it by steps instead of tracking it by duration on the treadmill. I don't think that's smart. Um, I, I, I also don't think that it makes that big of a difference. I think it's important to monitor it on the way down to try to maintain close to levels. So the only times I just need are A, somebody's sedentary and I know that it's going to dramatically help them feel better, have better joint health and improve recovery maybe and therefore indirectly burn more calories because they're just moving more. Or we're on the way down on a diet and let's say somebody on average is getting 8,000 steps. I might not increase their neat more. But what I will say is like, Hey, I want you to stay between that seven to 9,000 steps as much as possible while we diet, because naturally you're going to want to move less as we pull calories. But it's hard because in it, it's funny because the body's so smart with this. We drop calories and then our body naturally stops fidgeting as much, stops blinking as much, stops talking as fast. That doesn't happen to me. <laughs> but, um, you know, if anybody on here puts this in slow-mo to listen to me, please shoot me an email and tell me because I think that shit is hilarious and I have heard multiple people say that. That cracks me up. But you will start uh, stepping less. You'll start sitting more instead of standing. Like your body will naturally decrease neat in a, an attempt to save and preserve energy. It's very smart. It makes sense. But it sucks for us because as we're dieting, we pull calories and our body moves less, so it burns less, and therefore the calorie deficit barely worked. So a smart approach with that is just to maintain the on the way down. So, okay, you on your Apple Watch, it says you stand on average six hours a day and you take 8,000 steps. Cool. Let's stay within an hour of that and let's stay within 1,000 steps of that. If you can get 1,000 more, great. If you can hit it on the dot, great. If you can hit 1,000 less, great. Just stay in that seven to 9,000 range and just stay in that five to seven hours of standing range. It's going to be different every day. Don't get too meticulous with it because you'll go batshit crazy trying to figure that out. But I do think it's important to stay within ranges on the way down because not, then you can maintain your uh, basically your TDE, right? Your thermic or total daily energy expenditure. If we can keep that in check, we're going to be better off during the diet. It's hard to do so, so you have to be active with that. On the way back up, I think it's unnecessary to even worry about it because – and you can keep an eye on it if you want to just look at it for experimental reasons. But at the end of the day, if you're consuming more calories on a reverse diet, as you increase calories, your body is naturally going to burn more calories because you're eating more. Therefore, the thermic effect of food is more and therefore you have more energy to move. So your total daily energy expenditure goes up naturally because you're talking more, you're blinking more, you're fidgeting more, you're walking more, and you're standing more. So I don't think it's necessary to track me on the way up on a reverse because quite simply, you're going to move more. So if you want to track it to just kind of notice those things, great. The only time I would say like it might make sense from an experimental point is if you're a coach, 
Um, so you want to use this information for with clients. If you're just a geek like us and you want to look into this stuff, but watch how it increases on the way up and you can kind of match that to your ability to stay lean during a reverse diet. Most people who are quote-unquote hyper responders who will reverse diet, bring calories up, and they get really lean, they usually have a dramatic increase in total daily energy expender. They train way harder, they sleep way better, and they move a lot more through NEAT. That's like a natural correlation to the people who are hyper responders to a reverse diet. But they don't realize that, so they just call themselves a hyper responder. This is usually why. Um, you don't need to understand that or track that to see it. I mean, if it happens, it happens, and thank God because that's awesome, right? But um, but that's just something that we've noticed over time. So that's kind of my thoughts on on neat and how to adjust it or if to adjust it. Amanda Jessica Sagoon, I know that bowel movements are part of check-ins with clients, bloating, digestion, etc. Can you talk about fiber and constipation? The recommended 10 grams per 1,000 calories approach. What is constipation an indicator of? Is it really normally for some people just to go every other day? This is hard because I do think it's very individual. Um, and it depends on your body mass as a whole. So how big? Like if you're 5 foot tall, 100 pounds, and you're not overweight, and your maintenance calories is only – 1500 naturally because you don't train super hard you don't have a ton of muscle you're small then i don't think there's any there's there's going to be situations where going every other day is a normal thing you're literally not taking in enough food where you're going to have a ton of bowel movements it's just part of it however if you're that small and you're going every other day and you notice a lot of bloat or you notice a lot of um, skin issues which would be a signal of, of digestive or gut stress. If you notice poor sleep, if you notice poor anything, insulin sensitivity, blood sugar levels, anything like that, you might have some some other things going on. You might have some constipation. You might have some gut issues, period. So I think if you're going every other day and there's nothing else wrong whatsoever, I don't think you have too much to worry about. If you're going every other day and you have a lot of other things going on, you feel bloated, you feel digestive stress, you're not sleeping well, you feel discomfort, then there's probably something going on. The recommended 10 grams per 1,000 calories approach is the bare minimum, in my opinion. I would say it's more like 10 to 15 grams per 1,000 calories, um, and I think it just depends on the person. Um, I would say 15 grams per 1,000 calories for men, 10 for women. Um, it just seems to be how it is. Uh, men usually need more of everything, it seems like, with most stuff. Um, that's just what I've noticed, and there's nothing wrong with doubling that. I've, I, I think there's kind of like this threshold, right? Like if you do 20 grams per 1,000 calories, so say you're eating 2,000 calories, that's 40 grams of fiber, you're going to be fine. You're going to be digesting really well. You're going to be going very regularly. You're probably not going to be bloated, so on and so forth. If you push that above 60, you're going to be very bloated, and it doesn't matter how high your calories get because the problem is, is I know people who consume 5,000 calories. If they consume 80 grams of fiber because it's just they're just eating quote-unquote clean foods, they're going to have digestive stress and constipation because fiber and water kind of have this uh, influx relationship. Uh, I, I want to say influx would be the right word for this, but fuck it. I don't care if it's the right word. You guys will know what I'm saying. <laughs> if you consume uh, fiber and not enough water, it doesn't work. You won't go. If you consume too much fiber and too much water, it can have the opposite effect as well. So fiber can kind of go both ways. Same with water. 
it can help you go more frequently and it can also back you up and keep you constipated. So you kind of have to find that sweet spot, which is usually between like 30 and 50 grams from what I've noticed. Um, women can get away with anywhere between 20 to 40. Men, I would say 30 to 50. Those are kind of the sweet spots and you never see any issues with that. However, fiber is kind of like sodium in the sense that when you increase it dramatically quick, you can have some issues. So if you go from 20 to 40, you might have some constipation. You might have some explosive diarrhea, one of the two. We don't really know. It depends on how you respond to the, the, the fiber. It depends on the food intake. It depends on your water intake. But the point is, is if you jump it up too quick, you can have one of the two issues. Same with sodium. If you are barely eating any sodium and then you learn from listening to my podcast that sodium is probably good for performance. So you start consuming a ton of sodium and salt and you do it immediately. You're going to retain a ton of water. You're going to gain three pounds. You're going to freak out. It's going to auto-regulate and then it's going to calm down. Same thing with fiber, but it's best to inch it up slowly. Um, like most things, you don't want to jump the gun, right? So slowly introduce fiber. But I, I think the best thing to do is like, if, if you don't have enough fiber, you're going to be constipated. If you have too much fiber, you're going to be extremely bloated and possibly constipated, or you're going to have the opposite effect and you're going to have the runs. So it can kind of go both ways. It just depends on how it works. And you got to make sure you're having water as well. Um, and with me, like with clients that she mentioned check-ins, I don't do digestion as a check-in with all of my clients unless I see that as a predisposed issue in the che- in the initial questionnaire. So with my clients, we go through the questionnaire. We'll change biofeedback markers that we need to track on a regular basis depending on the client. Um, if I know you have digestive stress, we're going to rank digestive health or stress or issues on a scale of one to five damn near every day because I want to know how things are going and I want to know that you're regular. If you've never had any digestive issues and you feel great, there's no reason for you to constantly rank that on a score of one to five. It's just a tedious measurement that you have to constantly think about. So it kind of just depends. But my recommendations for fiber are going to be anywhere between that 20 to 40 gram mark, um, depending on your calorie intake. James Ward, advice for a client that continually nosedives off their nutrition on the weekends. Working with someone who's four weeks in and hasn't lost anything because of the weekend binges. He's 6'2", about 315 pounds, and will lose 4 to 5 pounds during the week on about a 10% deficit from 3,300 calories, but gains it all back on the weekends and then some. I believe alcohol and bar food is the biggest culprit. He knows it, but won't, can't stop himself. Yeah, so it kind of depends on the person, right? So I think like, and this is really common for a lot of people. You could do a couple things. You could increase the deficit during the week. Because the reality is, is make that 10% a 20%. If he's dialed in, he's meal prepping during the week, 3,300 calories is a lot of food for anybody. So if you create a bigger deficit, that's what, another 300 calories, he's at 3,000. Big fucking deal. Even if it's more, I don't even know what my math is, but, um, oh, it's from 3,300. So it's a little bit more than that, but he's in the high 2,000s at that point. Let him do that Monday through Friday. Tell him to track your best you can. You know he's going to go off the rails and have some drinks on the weekends, but it's going to balance out. If he's, at, if he's in a surplus during the weekend, you need to create a bigger deficit during the week. Your weekly caloric intake is going to balance out. And even if he's in a pretty low deficit Monday through Friday, but he has an increase in calories Saturday and Sunday, he's not going to have a, a jacked up metabolism because his weekly total intake is going to be adequate enough. And that's what the Matador study, that's what the 5-2 approach, that's what all these things have shown us in studies and in anecdote and experience. If his weekly caloric intake is in check, he's going to see the results he wants to see. So you could always just drop the calories a little bit lower during the week. You could also do a 5-2 approach, which is something I use with a lot of clients that have that weekend issue. It's like, okay, we're following 
this many calories during the week. It's a little bit lower. It's going to be a bit of grind, but we got to prep. We got to plan. We got to attack it. On the weekend, I'm giving you 750 extra calories. This is a lot of extra food. You can easily fit four beers and a burger in this if you're smart with the rest of your day. Meaning, let's say you fast and then lunch is a very light meal. You have plenty of room for dinner and drinks, but you have to fit it in this caloric intake, this 3,300, this this 3,000, whatever it is. Now he's like, okay. I know I'm going to go drink tonight. Instead of trying to hide it or say screw it or anything like that, I'm going to track ahead. I am going to purposely add four beers into my fitness pal. And then I'm going to add a burger because I'm probably going to have a burger. That leaves me with barely any fat. So I should probably have an egg white omelet for breakfast instead of my whole egg normal one. Now we can start planning and putting things together. And now the weekends are still not ideal, but they're under control. That's the biggest key here. How can you create control over those weekends? Give him flexibility to where he can go have some drinks and foods with his, with his buddies. He can splurge a little bit, but it's within his boundaries. And then just use what you need or take away what you need to take away during the week to make his weekly total intake more in check and with, in line with where his goals are at. I think that's the best strategy, honestly. And then the obvious, I mean, like you could go into talking to them about their why and what the importance is and see what the deal is with adherence. Why are you really drinking so much? But there's just some people that just enjoy that lifestyle. They want to go out to a bar and have some drinks, and that's important to them. We don't need to judge them for that. We don't need to worry about that. We, we as coaches need to adjust their plan to make sure that they can do that and still see the results they want to see. So my advice to you, man, is is I would probably go with a 5-2 split. And even if the two days were more intuitive, I would just make your best judgment of what you think it would be. And you can even have them track the next day. So, hey, go out on Saturday, do your thing, um, try to control it as best you can. The next day, hey, I want you to go back into my fitness pal and track everything you consumed. That'll give you an idea of what he's actually consuming. Is he consuming 4,000 calories? Is he consuming 5,000, 6,000? Or is he not even going in a surplus and it's just the pure alcohol in a system that's stopping fat loss? These will give you more signals. Um, and then you can raise the calories on the weekends, lower them during the week to make that balance. The last thing I will say to this is if he is not going over in calories on the weekends in food but just in pure alcohol, at that point – then I would have a talk with him about drinking less in order to uh, elicit change. Um, I'm going to drop a link to the the article I did on fat loss and uh, drinking alcohol. But the reality is, is alcohol does blunt the body's ability to lose fat. It basically puts all processes on hold, testosterone, uh, hormones, metabolism, muscle growth, fat oxidation, things like that. So you're literally pausing fat loss and results every time you drink. So I think it's important to know that too. Um, so it depends on the person, man, but uh, that's a long-winded answer, but that's probably how I would approach it with them. Adriana Frank Ling. Two questions. Number one, is a mini cut always needed after a massing phase? Can you go into maintenance for a while, then cut later? Is a mini cut always needed after? No, not at all. I think actually, uh, I think maintenance phases can be put in between everything. But I think it's it's important to understand. It, it depends on how the massing phase went. So if if you go into a massing phase, and let's say you build a, a good amount of muscle, but you also put on a lot of fat, you might need a mini cut afterwards if you put on too much fat. If you get to the end of a massing phase, you feel really good about the amount of muscle you put on, and you did not put on so much fat that you're concerned about it, I think at that point, it's okay to go into maintenance because all we're trying to do with maintenance is when we consider doing mini cuts and maintenance phases and, and massing phases, what we're really trying to do with a maintenance phase is just reestablish 
metabolic capacity. So if we just got done with a cut, we want to build our metabolism back up. If we just got done with a mass, then it's about resetting our body settling point. And that's basically where our body sits on the weight scale. So if we put on muscle and we increased our weight, we actually want our body to settle with that muscle. So we might go into maintenance calories, which means we drop calories a little bit. We'll maybe, depending on the person, naturally burn a little bit of fat because we are at a lower calorie intake than we just were. So we did drop calories naturally, but we're not in a deficit. We're at maintenance, which is going to allow us to maintain that muscle mass a little bit easier. Stay there for at least a few weeks, if not a month, maybe two months at most, and then you can go into a mini cut. The only reason I would say you'd want to go to a mini cut first is if you put on a good amount of fat during a mass, which is usually part of massing. When you put on muscle, you're going to put on some fat, and sometimes it's good to go right back into a mini cut because it's more important to strip the fat off your body, to improve insulin sensitivity, to get your body ready, um, to build again, to just feel better and more confident, um, and then you can start massing again. So you can do it any any way really. Um, so I wouldn't say a mini cut is always needed after a massing phase. However, a lot of times it is. If you're doing a lean gaining phase, I don't think it's necessary. I think a maintenance comes first. Usually with lean gaining, it goes lean gain, maintenance, long-term cut, repeat. With massing, you're going at a faster rate. So you might actually only be building for 12 weeks, maybe 16, which is a really short period of time in order to build serious amounts of muscle. But if you're doing it right, then you're putting on some fat as well. And there's studies to show that if you allow yourself to put on fat during the process of muscle growth, you will build more muscle faster. It's just part of it. It's It sucks because you put on fat, so it's not as like lifestyle friendly, meaning if you're really into bodybuilding, it's worth it because you're in this for the long term and all you care about is being more jacked, um, which I get. I've, I've done plenty of times. I'm putting on, I, I just got done with a little bit of a gain and I did put on fat. The only reason we jumped into a mini cut is because I'm going to Vegas. I didn't know this until recently. I'm going to Vegas for my bachelor party. So I want to look good at the pool. I want to feel confident. So we are doing a five week mini cut just to trim a little bit and then we get back to it. So it kind of just depends on what you're doing. Number two question was suggestions of adding cardio during a cut that is not in a fasted state first thing in the morning. Keep up the amazing content. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening, learning, and reading. I appreciate it more than you guys know. Suggestions of adding cardio during a cut that is not fasted first thing in the morning. Um, any cardio. At the end of the day, like I think what people need to realize is cardio is cardio. Burning calories is burning calories. All you're doing with cardio in order to improve your physique is literally adding to your total daily energy expenditure. You're literally just trying to burn more calories per day. So you got to decide. First question, what days can I do cardio? Next question, what time of day can I do cardio? And I'm talking about adherence-wise. What is the easiest for my schedule? Number three, what type of cardio matches my lifestyle, my stressors, and my training most? Then my goals. My goals is last because at the end of the day, hit or list is going to match up with whatever your goal is no matter what. They both burn calories. The thing is, is if you're in a diet and you're training four to five days a week, I would probably suggest lists. If, if your goal is purely aesthetics and just body composition changes, I would probably suggest low-intensity cardio simply because high-intensity cardio is so draining on the nervous system. And you know right now you might have energy for it, but in eight weeks after you make another caloric drop and you've been dieting longer, so you're, you've been in a deficit for a bigger period of time and you've been consistently training for weeks in the gym, at that point, you're probably going to be so fatigued neurologically, you might not be able to handle high-intensity intervals. It might just be adding to the stress, driving cortisol even higher, and causing more fatigue. 
less fat loss. So I think hit's kind of a gift and a curse. At the beginning of a cut, you can add hit and it could be good. If you have a very specific timeline, like you're getting on stage, you have a photo shooting like that, I would start with what you're going to finish with. So if you start with list, it's easier to adjust it along the way. Um, if you start with hit, same thing. It's easier to adjust along the way. However, you're going to get more draining. So to add hit as you diet is is just not something that works very well. And I have, I've seen that kind of um, – backlash on a lot of competitors i think the best thing to do in that situation is actually to do more lists your high intensity intervals come from your training it's just the reality like you squat really heavy for 10 reps you're probably squatting for 30 seconds to a minute then you take a solid two minute break your heart rate calms down you do it again that's a high intensity interval so you're already kind of doing that so even if we look at like your aerobic ability and your metabolic the metabolic aspect of what you're doing from an energy systems perspective Hit is very similar to training hard in the gym, lifting. So you might want to do a different type of modality, a different type of cardio. That's just my opinions. That's what I've noticed over the years coaching people. That's what I've seen work really well. Um, I find high-intensity interval training is better for people trying to stay lean while building or people specifically trying to improve their conditioning. If body composition is the sole goal, I love lists. I think it's really good. All right. Uh, Michaela Makova. With a bunch of tildes, so I know I am not probably pronouncing that right, but that's okay. Speed work, in parentheses, dynamic effort effort method in training programs. I would like to know your thoughts about it. When it's a good idea to incorporate it into a program, who would benefit from it, etc. I love dynamic effort work. That's like classic Westside Barbell. I actually just uploaded a program into the Boom Boom Elite that was called the Boom Boom Performance Conjugate Method. So I literally took the conjugate method style of periodization from Westside Barbell and put my own twist on it. Um, there is max effort days and dynamic effort days. So the way this method works is two days a week are max effort, two days a week are uh, dynamic effort. The original, you could do this full body, but the original is an upper lower split. So you have one day of upper lower or upper max effort, one day of lower body max effort, take a rest day. Then you have a dynamic effort, upper body rest, dynamic effort, lower body. So you're basically using your body in a max effort strength. So now we're training in like the three to five rep zone, six to eight rep zone for accessory work, but like heavy low rep stuff. And then the next day you're doing a dynamic effort. You could also do a repetition effort. So this would be like conjugate method for hypertrophy. Two strength days, max effort, two repetition effort days where it is a quote unquote dynamic effort, but it's more targeted towards bodybuilding. So just higher rep, more muscle uh, pump work, so on and so forth. I like that. That's one of my favorite methods for anybody who wants to lose fat or build muscle that in the general population. So somebody who doesn't have time to be in the gym five, six days a week doing like a push-pull bodybuilding split, this works really well. You're in there four days a week. You do a couple strength days, a couple hypertrophy days. It's perfect, and it's, it's programmed in a way that's really safe on the joints too. Where dynamic effort comes into play is for two people. A, the person who is looking for strength gains more than anything or athletic performance. This is where it's very important to work on speed, power, and again, dynamic movement. So doing things like walking lunges or reverse lunge with a step up um, or a high knee into a reverse lunge, doing lateral movements, like things that are more athletic or dynamic, this is where they come into play because your movement capacity and ability needs to be better as an athlete. Um, Your power and speed work need to be better if you are a strength athlete or a power athlete. If we look at the bench press, for example, it's a very neurological movement to bench press heavy weight. 
a great way to improve your nervous system is to work on speed and power work. So body or power lifters from Westside Barbell started using this conjugate method with a uh, max effort and a dynamic effort day because the dynamic effort day allowed them to uh, exceed their abilities on the max effort days. And the max effort days were realistically what gave them the result on the platform in competition, right? Like being able to lift as heavy as possible for a lift on the dot when the light turned green. Your ability to do that comes down to more than just bench pressing three to five reps. It also comes down to building muscle and it also comes down to speed and power mainly. So it worked really well for, for power lifters. I think dynamic effort works best for strength athletes or people interested in strength. I think the repetition effort I spoke of works better for body composition. The max effort days are in there regardless. You just switch the dynamic to a repetition. Um, the last place I would put this is for an aesthetics based person who does have time to train five, six days a week. So if you're an advanced individual and you want to achieve the most optimal physique, I do think it's important to incorporate them. You just don't need to do it as much as you would if you are a power strength athlete. So a good example of this is actually functional muscle too, which I will link in the show notes. But this is probably my most science-based program that I've ever created and released. Um, something I'm very proud of, something I really geeked out on and I really love. It's a five-day-a-week program uh, upper, lower, rest, push-pull legs. So what that is is you have a uh, – because it's a hypertrophy-focused program, your push-pull legs stays the same the whole entire program. Um, the variations of exercises change throughout the nine-week phases or 12-week block. But what doesn't change is the rep zone, uh, rep zone. So those are hypertrophy days. So we're staying in that 8 to 20 rep range. So the heavy work's 8. Then we slowly get lighter and we slowly go into more pump work. But we're staying in that higher rep hypertrophy zone. Um, on the upper lower days, we alternate the compound lifts from strength to speed. So the cool thing about this is it's also a deload on your joints and on your muscles. Week one, you're going heavy. Five reps, three reps, six reps on accessory, like really heavy stuff. It is going to be taxing on your muscles, your nervous system, and your joints. It's just part of it. The next week, you're doing speed work. So now you go from an 85 to 90% load all the way down to a 60 to 65% load for only three reps. You're throwing the weight, literally throwing the weight because we want to work dynamic effort speed. You go a little bit higher rep and a little bit lighter weight on the accessory work, but it's more dynamic movements. And then the next week, you go back to strength. So now we're in this pattern of alternating between power, speed, and strength every week which gives you natural deload. So you don't have to deload throughout the whole entire 12-week program unless you're very new to lifting. But it's a five-day-a-week program, so you probably should be doing this only if you're an advanced individual. And then the push-pull legs day are strictly hypertrophy throughout the whole program, which isn't going to be as taxing on your nervous system or your joints because it's high-rep stuff, more pump work. Um, Love the way I set up that program, but I use dynamic effort in a way that benefits the the, um, advanced hypertrophy focused or aesthetic focused individual and the reason for this is simple if we build our nervous system if we build our speed and our power we recruit more more motor units and muscle fibers and type 2 muscle fibers so the fast switch so if we do that and then go do our hypertrophy training we're more likely to actually build more type 2 muscle fibers which are the bigger denser muscles Um, so this is actually a really well-known concept used by lifters for decades um, like contrast sets for example something i've used in the elite you do one rep at 90 percent racket pull weight do six reps at 70 percent you're initiating that need and that recruitment for more 
motor units and muscle fibers, and then you immediately go into hypertrophy work and break down that muscle. So really good concepts, and there's a way to blend the two to make every individual more advanced and, and better results, um, and that's how I do it. Functional Muscle 2 is the best example for that, where I alternate between strength and power throughout the program while keeping hypertrophy centered the whole time. Um, I've never had a complaint about that program. I've never had anything but great reviews. I love that program so much. So I highly recommend people go check that out. Hey, guys, I want to take a brief moment to remind you about the Boom Boom Elite, our membership site. This is literally the perfect place for you. The reason I know this is because you're listening to this podcast. And anybody who listens to this podcast is a go-getter and an action taker. You are a person who is seeking information and education to better your body, better your performance, and finally transform your physique. I know this because people listening to this podcast really just seek results. And the one way to get better results is better training programs, but not only intelligently designed programs that actually build in progressions and avoid injuries along the way, but a place that's actually going to teach you how those programs are built. See, a lot of coaches and clients alike have insecurities about what they're putting on the piece of paper. Whether you're programming for yourself or you're programming for your clients, you probably have an insecurity or a lack of confidence in the programs you are creating. You probably question yourself. Are these programs actually going to work? Am I going to get injured along the way? When a plateau happens because it's bound to happen, what do I do? How do I adjust? How do I move through this plateau and finally start seeing results again? See, the Boom Boom Elite is not only a place to give you the programs that avoid these things and actually give you results, have built-in progressions, and make sure that you're not getting injured along the way, but it's a place that's going to educate you on how those things are actually built into the programs. So now you have longevity in your results. You can actually adhere to them because you know what the hell is going on behind the scenes. And you can start creating your own programs that actually work. And you have the confidence to know that they will work. So next time you put whatever you put on the piece of paper, you and your clients are confident and feel comfortable and actually believe in the system. Not to mention they're actually going to get results, which is the reason why we do this in the first place. So because you're listening to this podcast, And because I know you're perfect for this, I wanted to take a second to just remind you about the membership site because this is the place that I spend every single day communicating with the environment, communicating with the community about training, about nutrition, about supplementation, about all the things that go inside of coaching. So if you want access to the Boom Boom Elite, click the link in the description below or go to boomboomperformance.com slash elite and sign up today. And without any further ado, let's get back onto this podcast. Um, but yeah, let's get on to some of these Instagram questions. All right. Have you ever seen times when a reverse diet doesn't work? X gains only fat, then can't cut. Oh, example, sorry. When I do the story thing, um, it's almost hard to see the question because you only have so much space to write characters. Sometimes people abbreviate it. So have you ever seen – this is from JessLS328. Have you ever seen times when a reverse diet doesn't work? Example would be gains only fat, then can't cut. Yes, so I've seen it plenty of times. Um, So there's a few things to cover here. Like number one – you can't rush through a reverse diet. If you rush through it, it's you're not going to be able to jump right into a cut. Remember that a reverse diet isn't about changing your body composition. It's about changing your metabolism. So if we increase calories over time, we build up your metabolism, and then you immediately try to go into a cut, 
your body's probably not going to respond very well because it wasn't done with the process of maintaining its new body settling point and its new metabolism. So you have to think about reverse dieting, maintaining, and then jumping into a, uh, a cut. The other piece of that, you have to be aware of what your body did during the reverse diet. Typically, if somebody gains weight during a reverse, number one, if you're gaining body fat on a reverse, I would bet you're probably gaining muscle too. You're just having a hard time seeing it because you see body fat and we're our worst enemy. During a reverse, you should probably do measurements on, on limbs because they don't gain as much body fat and it'll show you that you are building muscle too. You should be tracking your weights in the gym so you can see that you're increasing weights on the bar. If you're increasing weights on the bar, inherently you are building more muscle. That's Your body can't do it without that. So I think that's really important. But it's hard for me to believe that you're built, gaining fat and not building muscle during a reverse. On top of that, if you gain a good amount of fat during a reverse, it's more likely, and it's unfortunate, but it's more likely that you're going to need a longer maintenance before you go into a cut. That means that your body did not respond very well to the reverse, right? It gained weight. Now, you could be feeling better. Your biofeedback could be better. Your metabolism could be better. Great. But your body gains weight easily. The good thing about this is that it will likely lose weight easily too. So people have different uh, adaptabilities when it comes to their metabolism. So the opposite of this would be if you are somebody who did really well on a reverse diet, you didn't gain that much weight, if at all, during the reverse. That means you have a highly adaptive metabolism. And what that means is as you increase your calories, your metabolism adapts really quick. As it's adapting, it's actually speeding up, which means – as you increase calories, it adapts quick enough that your metabolism can handle the increase and you will not gain weight. The bad thing about that, it's great for the reverse. The bad thing about that is now we go into a cut. We pull a little bit of calories. Nothing happens. Pull a little bit more calories. Nothing happens. Why not? I pulled 5% of calories. I read that you know 5% is a good adjustment to make, which it is. The reason it's not happening is because you have a highly adaptive metabolism. So just like your metabolism speeds up quickly, it slows down quickly. And that means when you pull calories, it adapts quickly to a lower calorie intake right away, just like it adapted quickly to a higher calorie intake. So I hope that makes sense to people, but you have to understand what kind of metabolism you have. So for the person that goes through a reverse and adapts really well and doesn't gain a lot of weight, when they get done and we do a little maintenance phase and they're like, I'm ready to cut, I'm going to take a bigger chunk out of their calories. I'm going to take a more aggressive approach, 15%, 20%. Give them more diet breaks, but I'm going to attack it hard, be more aggressive. Why? Because they have a highly adaptive metabolism. Pulling 5 7%, that's not going to do shit. Pulling 10 15 20 that will make something happen. So you have to understand your adaptability of your metabolism. And this happens over time. This is why my most successful clients have been working with me for a long time. I learn about their bodies. I learn about their metabolism, and it helps a lot. Um, so for the person who does gain weight very easily during a reverse diet, you're probably actually going to be in a position where you can pull barely anything, and you're going to lose weight. You're probably one of those 5% dieters. Your, your metabolism is very slow to adapt. So what that means is you need to take a slower approach to your reverse diet and a slower approach to your maintenance, which sucks. You have to take more time to reverse, and you probably should spend a little bit more time at a maintenance phase. But after that maintenance phase, and you're ready to cut, and you're actually ready to cut, don't jump to conclusions. Like you're actually rested, your biofeedback's better, your stress is better, you're actually ready to cut, you could probably get away with pulling 5% of calories and seeing better results. Because your metabolism is that way in an adaptability standpoint. So I hope that makes sense. Um, but yeah, 
All right, so Jojo Stani, 1177, hit, so high-intensity interval training in a calorie deficit. Bad for your already compromised hormones? Yeah, I already kind of talked about this with that question with uh, what kind of cardio I recommend. I do believe it is. Going, and it depends on the rest of your stress, though. So let's take two scenarios. If I have somebody who is has a, let's say me, I'll put myself in there. For me, list is going to be the way to go. I prefer to train in the gym five to six days a week. I like lifting. So for me, I want to lift. That's my priority. I, uh, I have a high-stress job. I am go, go, go. I'm on calls all day. I'm recording podcasts. I'm doing interviews. I'm writing content. I'm working with clients. Like, it's just nonstop. After that, I have a one-year-old running around the house who is very active right now, right? And she does wake up in the middle of the night, so we don't always get the best sleep. But there's a lot of stressors in my life. Hit is going to be the worst thing for me if I go into a deficit. If I'm in a calorie diet, uh, if I'm going to go into a diet and go into a calorie deficit, hit is just another stress. Intermittent fasting is just another stress. Drop sets are just another stress that are going to add to my total stress outcome. And I don't get enough sleep and I'm not getting enough calories to combat that from a recovery standpoint. So my recoverability for that hit is not there. Now, you give me somebody like my brother. My brother... He doesn't really lift right now, but if he lifted, he would probably go the minimal effective, right? He's not super into training like I am. So he'd probably go three times a week, let's say. He has a very low-stress lifestyle. He's the chillest dude, the most calm dude I've ever met in my life, just so laid back, whatever, right? His biggest stress is his son. His son is six months old, I think. But the point is, is very, very low stress. He'd be a perfect person for hit because he doesn't have a ton of stress on top of what he's doing. So adding hit is, is a good stress to his body. He could probably handle it and recover from it. I couldn't. So it just depends on where your stress is at. Um, and it depends on your time. But I will say, if you're going into a deficit and you're planning on staying in a deficit for a long time or you're taking an aggressive approach, then I don't think it's the best standpoint, especially if you're getting to lean, lean levels. Remember that if you're in a 100-calorie deficit or a 700-calorie deficit, it doesn't matter as much as your body fat levels matter. So if somebody is in, so we have two people, one's in a 700 calorie deficit and one's, let's say, in a 200 calorie deficit. Let's make it a little bit more realistic. But the person in a 200 calorie deficit is a male at 8% body fat, 7% body fat trying to get on stage. He's already shredded trying to get leaner. Person in a 700 calorie diet is at 20% as a male, has plenty of fat to lose. Completely different scenarios, right? Because even though his deficit is way bigger, he has more body fat on his body. Therefore, he's not as hormonally compromised. The person that is already shredded, he is in a more compromised state even though his caloric deficit is much smaller. So who would be better for HIT? The dude that even has a bigger deficit. It's a completely different scenario. So it just depends in so many different ways. But yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with LIS in most cases if you have compromised hormones. Joseph Hawthorne, my man. Supplement timing for optimal absorption. With or without food and inhibition issues. And then he sent another one. I know that this is getting into the 1% weeds, but we both know you enjoy that shit. <laughs> You're right, man. I do. So uh, I love the specificity. So I think uh, there's a couple things. Supplement timing for optimal absorption. There's two things that come to mind. Actually, three things. Number one is that it's not as complicated as some people make it seem. Um, so don't overthink it. Number two is that you should be taking it with food and you should study the type of food you're taking it with. Example, vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin. 
if you have a lot of body fat on your body, you probably don't have too much to be concerned about, but it's more about food absorption. So you want to take that with fat. So if you have eggs in the morning with coconut oil, that's plenty of fat. Take your vitamin D with that meal because it's going to be better absorbed. The way I look at it, and there's some vitamins like B and stuff that are water soluble. So you just need a lot of water when you take it. The way I look at it is if And this is also why when you get super, super lean, your likelihood of being depleted and deficient in these fat-soluble vitamins like vitamin D is way higher. If you're very dehydrated, it's much more likely to get a nutrient deficiency with these water-soluble vitamins. You lose the water-soluble vitamins with your water loss and your dehydration. You lose the fat-soluble vitamins with your body fat, and you might have to supplement with a higher dose. Um, So that's something to keep in mind. But the way I look at it is like we have a worker trying to get – or like a a sale – like let's say a, a, a seaman trying to get to shore. He's going to get on a boat and he's going to sail there. The boat is fat. The seaman is vitamin D. He needs that fat in order to get to land. The land is your body, your immune system, your nervous system, your hormones, so on and so forth. So that's kind of like the transport center, right? So it's really important to make sure you're taking it with food, but it's really important to understand what type of food you need to be taking it with. Usually you're safe if you just take your vitamins with food, um, any type of uh, supplements. Um, same thing with carbohydrates. What do carbohydrates start, uh, absorb best with? Water and – or I'm sorry, creatine. I just gave away the answer. <laughs> what does creatine absorb best with? Water and carbohydrates. So you should probably take your creatine with carbohydrates. Um, so just like do the research on that stuff and then understand it. And then the other piece of that would be I wouldn't take vitamins and minerals, those type of supplements, around your training. We got to remember that a lot of these antioxidants, a lot of these anti-inflammation supplements, like a lot of these things help with our immune system. They help with the stress. They help with the inflammation. When we train, we are purposely providing inflammation and stress in order for our body to have to naturally adapt and get better. Our immune system breaks down when we train. Therefore, it has to adapt, get stronger. Our muscles get stressed, break down, therefore create inflammation. They have to repair that inflammation naturally, which is literally the process of building muscle, so on and so forth. And the list goes on. Because of that, you don't want to take vitamins and uh, supplements like that right before or after training. You probably want to save those for a time you're not training. Let your body go through that inflammatory response naturally. It's the same reason why jumping in an ice bath post-workout is not a beneficial thing for hypertrophy. You're blunting that inflammatory response that we need our body to go through in order to build more muscle. If you're an athlete who needs to blunt that response so that they can perform again as fast as possible, completely different. You should jump an ice bath. It's going to help. So so there's a lot of it depends on that one. All right, we don't have much time left, so I'm going to start cranking through these. When was the most fun you've ever had when training? Ben Steele, underscore Ben Steele. Great question, Ben. The most fun I've ever had when training... Um, I'm going to assume you're talking about like a time period was when I was 20, 20 years old, not even 21, 20 years old. Um, I was working at bigger ground and I was training with the crew. So the night crew, we would train at like, we start training at 9 PM. We'd probably train to like 11, sometimes even midnight. And then we usually go to like a, a diner in the middle of the night and eat our post-workout meal. Um, crazy i don't know how the fuck i did that but i trained with hugh uh which is the he is pretty i mean i would say he's like five six five seven he's not a very tall guy at all but he's the most jacked asian guy i've ever met in my life like i mean like literally just a superhero he's a monster um super strong too and luca osavar who was the big bald slovenian guy just a monster 
Uh, he's taller though. He's probably like six one, six two, but big ass dude. Sylvanian, just super fucking strong, super smart. Um, Akeem, Akeem was a big dude, super super strong, funniest guy I've ever met in my entire life. Like literally fucking hilarious, and he sings so well. It's it was the craziest thing because we'd be training our asses off. We're all sweating super hard, and this dude would start singing Whitney Houston, but like. It's one of those things where you look at this guy, this big dude, sweating in the middle of a training session, starts singing Whitney Houston. It's the funniest thing in the world. But you cannot laugh because he's hitting the notes so on point. Like, so on point. Like, it's literally to the T. Like, he has a beautiful voice. And I have no shame in saying that this man has a beautiful voice. He's such a great singer. But it made it even funnier because it, it was hilarious. Um, Theo, who used to be a host on the show, one of my best friends, going to be in my wedding. Somebody I trained, and then he worked with me. He was on. He was a co-host. He still trains at Vigor. He was always with us. Um, and then Dennis. Dennis was hilarious. Dennis would be there like every third training session, like randomly pop in with his foam roller. I don't know why, but he never left home without his PVC pipe. But that was the best time of training, man. It was just cool because it was just five or six dudes listening to usually like hood new york rap because that's all that luca listened to Dipset, dmx uh wu-tang shit like that um biggie we would just blast music it would be super late at night nobody's bugging us it was always full body strength training or high conditioning um like in an athletics perspective um and it was it was just a fucking blast man there's there's nothing better than having a lot of testosterone and camaraderie in a gym and just going hard um and i just took away and learned so much from training with those guys that that, that was definitely the most fun i've ever had Mr. Chad Roberts, what is your take on these massage guns, a.k.a. hypervolts? Great scam. I think they're kind of dumb, to be completely honest. I think there's, there's, there's always application for everything. Um, I, my PT used it a couple times on my leg um, for just temporarily loosening up the tissue. So, like, I think it was beneficial for that because he used the gun on my quad and hamstring to loosen it up. And then he passively pushed my knee into more range of motion. My muscles were locking up because I just had surgery and I just tore my meniscus. He had to loosen them so he could manually push them and stretch them and get my knee into full extension. So I think there's merit to it that. If you're just doing it just because you're sore, it's not going to prevent – like recovery starts with training and then goes to sleep and then goes nutrition. Or nutrition and sleep can kind of flip-flop. But the reality is is like you should program design for better recovery – a gun that beats your muscle really isn't going to do much. It might temporarily loosen you up or make you feel better. Your nervous system calms down and you can go through an extended range of motion. So in the short term, if you're willing to use it before every single session to allow more range of motion, I think that could have benefit because more range of motion equals better training and you're going to get a result from training. Um, but I, I really think it's just it's mainly hype, to be honest. Karina Kokina. Damn, that makes me want to say, like, uh, on Scarface, cocaina. It's inappropriate. Sorry, guys. Great movie. What are some essential exercises for a long-distance runner to prevent injuries and gain speed? That one is really hard for me to answer on a podcast because I think it's pretty individual. It really depends on your running gait. It depends on if you're hypermobile. A lot of runners are hypermobile. It depends on your muscle imbalances. It depends on your mobility. It depends on a lot of things. So um, what are some essential exercises for long-distance runners to prevent injuries and gain speed? I'm going to say posterior chain movements because if you look at running, your hip flexors and quads and calves are going like crazy. So I'd probably be working your glutes 
and your hamstrings. And then I would also be working your upper back because most of the time you're slouched forward. So I would be working on a lot of thoracic extension and a lot of upper back work just to build and, and keep healthy shoulders since you're always rounded over. Um, but I, I think like having specific essentials is really hard for me to give you without assessing you. I'm just too much of an individualized guy. Um, overall, you just need to build strength. The best way, thing to do is build strength in your lower body and it's going gonna, it's gonna to help you. All right, we got some more, but I'm only going to answer. Let's do one more. Paula Jean 2030. What's your opinion of diet templates like RP? So I, I got to put this message out before I answer this question because I don't want to seem like I'm talking shit on RP whatsoever because I love RP. I love the guys at Renaissance Periodization. Um, I'm part of RP Plus, so I pay for all the content they put out. I've had a podcast and talked with James multiple times. I, I watch all of Mike's stuff. I love those guys. They put out so much good information. I think a, a RP diet template can work for an individual who is very disciplined and understands the process of reverse dieting and understands the process of macros and all that stuff by themselves. I think it doesn't work for those who need accountability and who do not understand the process of a diet after the diet or a diet before the diet because the reality is is an algorithm-based nutrition plan is probably going to run you into the ground at some point. It's just set up on an algorithm that will slowly lower calories until you get to your destination, but it doesn't tell you how to prevent that. It doesn't implement diet breaks and refeeds unless they've changed the algorithm. So as an individualized coach and as somebody who takes pride in making everything tailored to the person – I do not believe or like any templated anything, no matter where they come from. Um, I think they can work in some situations. I think training templates can work really well for a lot of people. But I think nutrition templates just do not work because I think it's too individualized of a thing in order to get a great result from a template. Like a, a template and an algorithm can't tell me how hormones are working. It can't tell me how your performance and your biofeedback and your stress is. I, I just don't believe it. Um, but the reality is, is those guys are really fucking smart and their company is doing well. So something is working and it does work for some individuals. So for me to sit here and try to talk shit on it would be wrong. I don't think that's correct. I think it does work for some individuals. I think for most people, especially for people listening to this podcast and the people that I help and I educate, I think they need individualized attention because I just think there's too many things that an algorithm can't provide.